1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you have your Bible, please open up. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians, and we come to a chapter that talks directly to the church, and specifically the, the, the character and nature of the church as we are equipped and brought together. Um, it is a teaching that, by God's grace, will, we will hear, and not just hear, but do. This is a very practical passage. It is one that at the end, I hope that we're able to ask ourselves, to what degree am I a member of the body of Christ? How am I exercising the, the gifts and the ministries and the services that God has given me specifically for this church at this time in human history to have the impact that God has called us collectively to have? We're going to be talking today about unity, diversity, community, and the Trinity. A lot of, a lot of itties there, right? I, I pray that you don't shut down when you hear things like that. Um, by God's grace, I will be able to explain it in such a manner that we can all understand it and apply it to our lives. The, the, the teaching on diversity, if you've been exposed to public a- education at all in the last uh, probably 15, 20 years, then you've been exposed to lots of diversity. Um, when I was at De Anza teaching several years ago, the, the faculty and staff came up with this idea that they would, they would teach uh, they would have an emphasis, and the emphasis was on the title of it was Embrace Diversity. And so the hope was that, that, that teachers would engage their students with this teaching on diversity, hoping to, to um, get the, the campus uh, away from discrimination, away from bigotry. We were struggling with some of those issues at that time years ago. And I, I, would, I took it and I pressed my students a bit on it. Um, in, a, in a loving manner, but I wanted them to think. And I said, if we're truly going to embrace diversity, I said, then we must be willing to embrace those who are dis- discriminate and those who are bigots, yes? And of course, there was just silence in the class, and they were a bit agitated, and they got bothered by the statement. Uh, and so I, I pressed them a little bit further, and I said, what would it be like if we could all agree upon this diversity being right. And I said, that would require what? And one student said, well, that would require us to be unified. I said, so we must have both diversity and unity at the same time. And then another student, Riley, said, but what do we agree upon? And I said, well, that's the problem, right? What do we agree upon? What is it that can take the wonderful diversity that we see in God's creation and actually unify us and bring us together? Of course, that answer is not going to be found in a public classroom, but it is found in a church, and it is found in the word of God. And by grace, we will see that today. What they were dumbfounded by, this idea of diversity and unity coexisting, Paul teaches directly to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And he says, not only is it real, he says, but it's supposed to be here. It's supposed to be in every body of believers. Unity and diversity in community. And so today, I'd like us to look at three things. One, the unity and diversity in the body of Christ, the church. Uh, number two, why it's necessary. And number three, where does it come from? The unity and diversity in the church. Why is it necessary? And what is the origin of it? Where does it come from? Let's look at the first point. Unity and diversity in community. Verse 12. Verse 12 is a, it is a thesis statement. If you're an English 1A student, this would be at the, at the, uh, in, in your introductory paragraph as you were going to write your body paper. It would be verse 12, because verse 12 talks about how unity and diversity can coexist simultaneously. Look at it with me. Verse 12, 1 Corinthians. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now, the church of God 
is unlike any other gathering in the entire world. There's no other grouping of people that make up such a wonderfully diverse and yet radically unified group of people. Nothing else exists like the church of God on earth. Look at verse 12 again. For just as the one body is one, unified, and has many, many members diversified, he repeats himself, inverts it, and all the members of the body, though many, diversified, are one body unified, so it is with Christ. And he's making a statement here. He's not teaching to an imperative. He says, this is the church. The church is radically unified, and it is diversified. How is it unified? How are we, how are we one in Christ. How are we one as it is with Christ? Look at verse 13. We have the answer. Paul says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. Now, when he talk, he's talking about baptism here. He's not talking about the ordinance of baptism. Um, certainly the ordinance of baptism reflects this. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is a baptism that when you are unsaved and you're still dead... You're still running around chasing after idols. The Holy Spirit comes to you if you know Christ and he, he breathes life into you. He regenerates you. He makes you alive. This is the baptism of which Paul is talking about here. If you remember from Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, when John was baptizing people in the Jordan, they were coming out to him. Many were coming out and he was baptizing them. He said to them this in Matthew three eleven. Listen. He said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Who was he talking about? He's talking about Christ. He says, this man whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that is the baptism of which Paul is speaking to here in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, not only will you be baptized in one spirit, but he says, you will be made to drink of one spirit. And so we have this this imagery and this picture, it's fantastic. If, you are, if you've been saved by God, then you've been brought into the body of Christ and you've been brought into it. Not only have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit, and that word baptism means to submerge or to go under, in which case the Holy Spirit has enveloped you entirely. He's covered you entirely. But then we have the image of drinking the Spirit in. So it's come into you as well. In other words, the Spirit is inside of you and He's outside of you. He's all over you. He has captivated you. And He's captivated you in a community of believers who also have been submerged in the Spirit and had a chance to drink Him in as well. Everyone then who has been saved by God's grace in the body of Christ is one because of the unifying power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that in the body of Christ, there's an extreme unity, an extreme unity, so much so that notice in the, in the verse here, it transcends all human distinctions, Jew or Greek, slave or free. He says the boundaries, it doesn't eliminate them, it transcends or supersedes them. The unity in Christ that we have is greater than the distinctions of a Jew or a Greek or a free or a slave man or woman. And what's so glorious about this is this is only found here in the church, this unity that we have in God through the baptizing and the drinking in of the Spirit himself. Now, this unity we do enjoy does not erase the diversity. 
You see, in the world, we're constantly trying to say, if we're unified, then we can't be diversified. And if we're diversified, we can't be unified. My students could not figure out how do we embrace diversity without destroying unity. And in the church, God says, you're going to have both and you must have both. The unity of the body is made up by the diverse parts. Look at, uh, look at verse 14 and following. The unity of the body is made up of many, many diverse parts. Verse 14, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less, part, less a part of the body. So rather than diversity eliminating the unity, it becomes the substance of it. In other words, you can't have a unified body with diverse members if there are no diverse members. The substance of the unification is the variety that God brings together in his church. No one member makes up an entire body, but the many parts make up the one. So the foot may want to say to itself, I want to be a hand. I don't want to be stuck in a shoe. I don't want to be wrapped in a sock. I don't want to, in Paul's day, I don't want to have dust on me all the time. I want to be a hand. I mean, the hand seems so much better. But even if that, the foot wants to be a hand, it doesn't make it any less part of the body. It's still connected. still purposeful. If the, if the ear says, I want to be an eye instead... And we can understand that, right? I mean, I mean the, eye, the eyes are beautiful to look at. And, and the, eyes, the eyes are the window to the soul. And the eyes are always center stage. And when you talk to somebody, you're looking at their eyes. No one looks at your ear. I mean, when you're talking, you'll say, hey, turn around. The ear is always, the, the ear is never center stage. He's always off to the side, right? And so we can, if the ear says, I, I'm not the eye, therefore I'm not part of the body, Paul says in verse 16, that would not make it any less part of the body. The hands and the feet. The ears and the eyes, they are essential parts of the body of Christ, distinct and yet part of the whole. They make up the one body, and they cannot be eliminated without either bringing great harm or eliminating the body as well. Look at verse 27. Paul again reiterates unification and diversification. Now you are the body of Christ, unified, and each one of you, diversified, is a part of it. And then he gives an example in verses 28, 29, and 30. He says, God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, of different kinds of tongues. And then he asks this question, verse 29, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? The answer is what? No, no, no. Each part is important, each part is essential, and each part makes up part of the whole. The culture comes along and it says, we've got to have one or the other. If you want to be unified, you can't be diversified. If you want to have many parts, then you can't have a whole. But God says, that is the body. That is the church. The church is unified in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, being baptized in him and drinking him in and the church is also wonderfully diverse 
we have, going, go back to verse 11, which we did last week. It's diverse because we are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Gifts, services, ministry, talents given to the body of Christ that we might exercise them in the context of one church, in the context of a community of believers. And so what we see is not unity against diversity, or diversity pitted against unity, you see both taking place and taking shape in the church, in the body of Christ. And so the question would be for us, well, why is that necessary? I mean, why, do we, why can't we just have unity and forget about the diversity? That would be easier. We're not going to disagree as much. Or why can't we just exercise our own parts and do our own thing? Why do we have to have this central place? Why are both necessary? Look at verse 17. Paul says, if the whole body, the necessity of both, point number two, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? The answer is, there would be no body. There would be no body. Period. I mean, if the whole body were an eye, first of all, it'd be a monster, right? I mean, if the whole body were an eye, you don't have a body unified like Christ, like God made us in his image. You, you have an eye walking around. Actually, well, I can't walk. I guess it would just roll around, right? It, it would be a monster. It would be something we'd see in a B-rated horror movie. Um, if the whole body were an ear, then that body could not smell, that body could not see, that body could not walk. It would certainly hear well, and there'd be great unity in the hearing. But until those parts come together, they render the other parts useless. So not only do we have the necessity for diversity coming together, that if you, if you take them apart, they can't operate on their own. The body cannot be just an ear or just an eye or just a hand or just a foot. It would not only be incomplete, it would render the body useless, purposeless. One commentator wrote this. He said, unless the many perform their assigned functions, however diverse, the one body would not exist as a single entity, but as a chaotic array of conflicting forces without focus or coherence. So if we had diversity and no unity, I mean, think about all your parts would be running around. Now, Paul uses this physical analogy of the body. Imagine if all your body parts were fighting against each other. Imagine it. I mean, you couldn't get through any part of the day. And he says the same would be for the church. If we don't have one unified purpose in the glorification of God through Jesus Christ, then we're all going to be running around going different directions, and it will be a chaotic mess. And so Paul says here that no body part, and this is important, can perform what the other body part's supposed to do. The eye, regardless of how well that eye sees, will never, ever be able to hear. The eye cannot hear. The eye is equipped for seeing. And the ear, regardless of how well it hears, it will never be able to smell. And so the body parts are distinct and given to us for the purpose of the common good, as we saw last week. That parallel in the church of the physical body and the spiritual body, they hold true. The person, the person who has the gift of wisdom will not be able to exercise that special gift of faith. Or the person who has the gift of discernment will not be able to exercise that special gift of knowledge. Those gifts are distinct, and they can't perform the other. They're not supposed to. The eye's not supposed to hear, and the ear's not supposed to smell. That's why we have multiple, diverse, wonderfully given parts that come together and work for the common good and for the whole. Therefore, what? Look at verse 21. 
Therefore, if this is true, and we believe it to be true because that's what this chapter is teaching, verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the foot, I have no need of you. And this, I think, is probably one of the central aspects of this teaching, that we absolutely, just as your various body parts need each other to get along and function as a whole, the church needs the variety of members that God has brought together that we might actually be the church, that we might actually be one church, a healthy church, with eyes and ears and hands and and feet and legs to operate as such. The various members of the church, we, we depend upon one another. One of the commentators wrote, he said, whenever we begin to think about our own importance, and I would add, or our own um, dispensability, in the Christian church, whenever we do this, the possibility of real Christian work is gone. Why? Because pride, pride that comes into a body, it just destroys the body. And it's, it's absolutely absurd for us being one, mem- one body to, have, to exercise pride over another. Right? I mean, if we're truly connected, then if you're, a, if you're a, an arm or a leg, I should glorify in that because I need you to exercise your arm and I need your leg to walk. Right? There's, pride doesn't make any sense in the context of a diverse, unified church. And yet, one of the things that Paul was dealing with is the Corinthians were taking some gifts and saying, oh, you know what, this is much better than that one. And he says, well, yeah, I want those. Those are the greater gifts. We'll talk about that in a minute. In other words, if the hand says with great pride, I'm so glad I'm not a foot because I can take this steering wheel and I can drive down this windy road really fast. And if I were a foot, I couldn't do that. And then, and then the hand with a little bit of sense comes up and says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to steer anything unless... I have a foot doing what? I got to have a foot down there, down there. I got to have a foot working the accelerator and working the brake, or I'm, this car's not going to go anywhere. And so as soon as the hand begins to ele- elevate himself above the foot, he then realizes he absolutely needs the foot. He's not going to steer anything, except he's going to sit in the garage and go like this, not going down any windy road. We are mutually dependent upon one another. There is no body part regardless of how insignificant you may think you are, that is dispensable in the body of Christ. Every single part is given by God. Every single part is radically essential and necessary for for us as a church or any church to operate as one. Indispensable. Look at verse 18. It says that God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. That is such a profound verse. I mean, you know, every verse in the Bible is to speak. This is, this is an amazing verse. That means, that means for you, if you are in Christ, that you have, you have been equipped exactly as God intended to equip you. And you have been placed in the exact place that God intends you to use that equipping. God didn't, didn't just randomly save people and then throw them out and go, all right, let's see where they land. Ooh, too many there. You know, I got 10 eyes there and absolutely no ears, so they see, but they can't hear. And I got all these legs over here and no hands, so they're walking, but they can't steer anything. God chooses, he saves you, he equips you, and then he brings you into community in the exact place at the exact time that he wants. It's not by chance that any of you are here. 
And if you're a member of the body of Christ here at Camden, it's not by chance that you are a member here in this place at this time. Verse 18 tells us that this God did. He arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And that means that we ought to enter and exit a local body of believers with great care. You shouldn't haphazardly jump into a church, and by God's grace, you should not haphazardly leave. Because if we believe what 18 is saying, then the gifting, the equipping, and the placing is what God does. That is a divine appointment. Grievously today, many believers go from church to church to church like teenagers go through shoes. You know, if a teenager says, you know, the shoe doesn't fit, it's no longer comfortable, it's not in style, I'm going to try on this pair. I'm going to try on this pair. Well, if, if I'm rendering verse 18 correctly, that is grievous. Because God is the one who saves you, God is the one who equips you, and God is the one who places you. And therefore, if we're, if we're to treat our gifts and our placement as, as a teenager would shoes, then we are certainly sinning against God. We must be extra vigilant when it comes to one where we are a member, and two, the gifts that we've been given that we use them. And we, can't, we shouldn't be complaining about the gifts that we have if God's the one who gives them. That means what, saints? That means something very hard. That means we've got to be content. That means we have to be satisfied with not only where we are, what church we're in, but we must be satisfied with the gifts that God has given us. And, and, and he gave them to you. And that in of itself is glorious, regardless of what gifts you have or the gifts that you don't have. It's glorious. And when we grumble, when we say to God, I don't want to be here, why here? Or when we say to God, I don't, these gifts, you know, they're okay. I don't want to be a foot. I don't even like feet. I want to be an eye. I want to be a brain. I want, I want, I want to be a voice. When we grumble against God, what you're saying to God is this. You're challenging his freedom and you're challenging his wisdom. You're challenging him, he's God, to freely save, equip, and place whomever he desires. He's God. So you're challenging his freedom and you're also challenging his wisdom because when you say, I don't want to be here, I don't want to have this gift, I don't want to serve in this capacity, you're saying that you have greater wisdom than God and how he brings his body together, how he brings the bride of Christ together, that we have greater wisdom when we grumble against him. Unfortunately, this is nothing new. I mean, think about Adam and Eve. They were fundamentally not content, right? Right? God said, you may eat from any tree in the garden except one. And what did they do? They said, but we really want that one. That's the one we want. They were not content. They were not content not having the knowledge of good and evil. And so they ate from the tree. They didn't like where they were. They didn't like how they were limited. And it's the same with us. If we grumble against God because of the gifts or our location, then we, are doing, we go right back to our great, great, great grandparents and we're doing the same thing they did in the garden. This teaching on unity and diversity, I get. I get why it's so hard today. I get why it's so hard today in the American culture and the American church. I mean, it's almost the exact opposite of what we're taught and what we're trained from a very early age. I'm 48. I was told from a very young age that I could do anything 
if I put my mind to it. I could do anything if I put my mind to it. God says here, if you're an eye, you'll never smell. He said, if you're an ear, you're never going to walk. So God says very clearly, if you're an eye, let the nose smell. You see, do your job. You can't do everything, but you can do what God has equipped you to do. And that doing is glorious to him. I was taught from a young age that I, I, I essentially don't need anybody. I, I can do, I can, not only can I do anything that I set my mind, but I can do it by myself. I don't need family. I don't need friends. I certainly don't need a church. I can do this on my own. God says, stop being so pig-headed and prideful. We are made in the image of God as communal creatures. And not only can you not do it on your own, God says you are, you're brought into community and this community will love you and sustain you and minister to you as you do today. In other words, there's no such thing as being a lone ranger or maverick Christian. Not in the Bible. When you're saved, you're saved into community. And that means if you reject community, that you're rejecting fundamentally the salvation process. We're told from a very young age that we are free to go where we want and do what we want when we want. And that's, that's in the very fabric of American culture. God's saying here, I have decided where you will serve. I have decided how you will serve. How many of you are bothered by this? Just a little bit. You feel that if there's any tension, and you know what that is? That's just rebellion. You see, if God's saying, listen, you don't have that kind of freedom. He says, I saved you, I equipped you, and I will put you where I want to put you. And you say, who do you think you are? He says, God. I'm God. And I know what is best for you. Some will argue, still, how, how do I know that God will do what is right? How do I know that God will put me where I'm supposed to be? How do I know that God won't make me into an ear when I'm supposed to be an eye? I mean, how do I know these things? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Do you know what that means? That means God counsels with himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they have dialogue. They have eternal dialogue, and they make decisions. That's good counsel. In fact, we can say that is perfect counsel. It says in Ephesians 1.11 that God works all things according to the counsel of his own will. And that means that how God equips you and where God places you and what God calls you to do is absolutely perfect. You can rest assured that if you are submitting to the will of God, you are doing exactly what you should be doing, where you should be doing it, when you should be doing it, if you're submitting to the will of God. That's a glorious thing. How many of you in your life say, I don't even know if I should be doing this. Is this where I'm supposed to be? And you have those questions. The question is, are you submitting to God? Is he your God? Is he your Lord? If the answer is yes, then you are. You say, yeah, but I, I, I see myself over there. Maybe in time, maybe God will move you. Maybe not. Maybe that's what you want. What God wants is what we ought to want. And that means also, saints, that, that your gifts are equally important. Your gifts matter. Your, your placement matters. It's important. I, I have, we have as a church, we've watched um, literally hundreds of people, not, no longer, I used to say dozens, but it's now hundreds of people that will come and they will go quite whimsically without forethought, without prayer, without counsel, without saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. 
God saved me, he equipped me, he brought me here. What am I supposed to be doing here and now? And I'm not saying that people shouldn't leave churches. There are biblical reasons to leave churches. But I can tell you as a pastor here for 10, 12 years now, most people who have left have not left left for biblical reasons. Why? Because they take lightly, verse 18, that God calls, God equips, and God places. And that means, saints, that God must move. That means if you're going to move, he's got to move you. The world lifts up, they lift up positions of power and influence, they lift up the beautiful and the rich, and they treat as expendable those with less money, those with fewer degrees, those that don't live in the right part of the town or drive the right car or live in the right house. God comes along here and glorious man says, listen, if, if I've saved you, then you are equally important. Look at verse, look at verse 22. This idea of ranking and power and influence or beauty and riches, it's not in the church. Verse 22, Paul writes, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, those are the parts that live on the wrong side of town. It says, And to the, of those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. In other words, there's no ranking in the church like this. It means that every single part is essential and none are expendable. That means you cannot say to yourself, and if you have saints, you need to seek forgiveness because this is a sin. If you say, you know what, God, there's nothing for me to offer. There's nothing for me to do. I'm so ill-equipped. Right here, Paul's saying, on the contrary, you think like that. The parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. That means that the body cannot operate without you. So, uh, so I'm needed. Yes, you're needed. And more importantly, you're wanted. Wanted by God and wanted by the church. No expendable parts. I want you to notice, look, look again. It says those parts that seem to be weaker, but they're not. Otherwise, it's a perception issue. He says again, if we think those less honorable, but they're not. The problem isn't one being greater than the other. The problem is our perception of it. And that makes sense, right? Anytime... Anytime we get diversity, our flesh begins to rank. I'm better than you. You're better than me. And we start to do this movement in our mind. But it's just perception. It's all perception. In God's economy, the weaker and the less honorable, God places more glory on. That's impressive. You say, well, that's good, because I think I'm pretty pathetic when it comes to the gifts. If that's what what I'm reading here, then God's going to bestow more glory. And then some people say, but why would he do that? I mean, why would God pour out more glory and more honor on those, on those gifts that seem weaker? Why would he do that? Look at verses 24 and 25. We have a most glorious answer. We're told that God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Why? Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So as soon as we start ranking... And we start saying, yeah, you have a gift that I wish I had. You know, you can do things that I cannot do. Or, or worse yet, we're on the prideful side saying, I'm, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just so blessed. I'm so well gifted. You know, if you're tooting your own horn, Proverbs says you ought not do that. I had a seminary professor, uh, a wonderful man, and he taught New Testament, an Old Testament professor, an older man. He, he would say in jest, he goes, I, I hate, and I won't say the person's name, he goes, I hate this professor. And I'm like, well, why? I, don't you guys love each other? He said, this man is so gifted 
This man, this man can walk into a room, he can captivate an audience, he can teach the Bible, he plays piano, he was, he was tall, he was handsome, he has all these parts, right? And then, of course, the older man says, but, he goes, I know that I have greater honor from God because I'm not like that. And, and what he was trying to teach us is, that, listen, as we rank these people, lifting some up and putting ourselves down, God, he levels that. In other words, God comes in and he says, listen, it doesn't matter how weak you think you are. It doesn't matter how insignificant you think you are in the body of Christ. God pours out glory on you. And the purpose here is so that there won't be any divisions within the church. You see, one of the problems with the diversity is it divides, right? And so unless God brings a unifying power, a diverse body will, our flesh will rank. We'll lift some up, we'll put others down, and we'll fall on that scale. And so what God does is he pours greater honor and greater glory on the weaker parts so that we, he levels everybody out. And so what happens is you can have diversity without division. You can have diversity in unity. And they come together in Christ in a local assembly of believers. And the great outworking of this, look at verse 26, when you have the many parts that come together to make up the glorious one. Look at verse 26. That means if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Do you see that? You're the body of Christ unified and individually diversified members of it. And we have this picture And it's a radical picture. And as I said in the beginning, it's unlike any other gathering in the world. The uh, the church of God is unlike any other gathering of people in the entire world because you have the unity in the Holy Spirit bound together by the blood of Christ and you have the radical diversity of people coming from all places, all tribes, all tongues, all nations and so radically gifted and brought together to make this fantastic oneness could you, can you think of any other organization, any other group that even comes close to that? Don't raise your hand because you can't. There's nothing like it. The church is, God says, this church is really one in the Holy Spirit. The church is, God's saying to the Apostle Paul, really diverse with all the members coming together and working together. It is wonderfully diverse and it is radically united he says this is the church and then paul's saying listen to the degree that you live like that to the degree that you see that you're one and you're bringing your diversity in and you're exercising that together he says to that degree god is magnified in this fallen place because the world knows there's when the world sees a true church that is exercising unity and diversity in community the world says there's nothing like that even, even, even the lost in, in, in communities, social gatherings, um, they see when the church is being the church and living like the church, they see something wholly distinct here by God's grace because of our holiness. Not perfect. There is no perfect church. If your thought is, I'm going to leave this church and go to the next because this one's so imperfect, guess what? You're going to go to another imperfect church. And here's the thing. We are sinners saved by grace. So if you think you're going to go to a perfect church, you better stop because you're not perfect and you're only going to ruin it, right? We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about striving for the unity and diversity that comes through Christ. 
We're talking about moving collectively in that direction. And all for the same purpose. All that we might glorify God and magnify him in this place that doesn't have unity and diversity. So we've seen one. That there is supposed to be and ought to be and need be university and diversity in the community of the church. They both exist together beautifully. One cannot be and exist without the other. And secondly, we see that they are absolutely essential to one another. Okay? Unity, diversity, and community, essentially. Are you all with me still? All right. You say, well, why? It sounds, it's hard, right? It's hard. If we press unity, then we exclude. And if we, if we embrace diversity like my students tried, then we have no unifying power. Why, why is this the foundation of the church? Why did God make it so hard? Why can't it be easier? Well, there, there's a, an ontological reason. There's an eternal reason. Look at the last point. The origin of the unity and the diversity and the community is, as Pastor Kurt said, it is the Trinity. The reason that you have unity and diversity in all of creation is because of the Trinity. And the reason that God calls us as a church to be radically united and radically diverse coming together is because of the Trinity. Say, all right, uh, can you explain this? I will try. I need you to listen, though. When we start talking about Trinitarian stuff, I mean, it's tough stuff, right? But this is essential to our faith. It distinguishes us from all other worldviews, all the religions, all the philosophies. The Trinity is imperative for us to understand, not only in our theology, but in how we live as a people. When I first came to A Saving Grace in Christ, one of the early books that someone gave me it's fascinating because I would never give this book to someone who's new in the faith, but I'm thankful they did. They gave me a book by Robbie Zacharias. Have you ever read any of Robbie Zacharias' books? You need like a dictionary right next to the book because the guy's vocabulary is extraordinary. And the book was entitled, Can Man Live Without God? It was, it was wonderful in shaping my early understanding of my faith and community and reality. In one of the latter chapters of the book, he deals specifically with unity and diversity in creation. You know, how do we understand the diverse components and unity simultaneously? And he writes this. He says, In 585 BC, a man named Thales correctly predicted a solar eclipse. It was Thales's love for ordered knowledge that gave birth to philosophy. But Thales fervently sought the answer to another question. What was the question? He knew the world was made up of an infinite variety of things, plants, animals, clouds... What he wondered was the one basic element that pulled it all together. Since then, the quest for the philosopher has been to find unity in diversity. For example, every American coin reads what? E pluribus unum, out of the many, one. Out of diversity, unity. And even the very word university, if you went to university, means what? Finding unity in diversity. The very system of higher education is to try to find unity in the complex diversity of the creation that we see. Now, if you're like me, I was a product of public schools. So at the time that I was going through my my training in elementary, middle school, high school, and all the way through college, I, I learned variety. I learned diversity. But there wasn't a single thing that pulled any of this together. And I remember, you know, you go from biology to English to math to history. And I remember thinking, 
how does it all work together? Is there, any, is there any way we can bring it together and lump it together? I attended the university, the University of California at Davis. And I took a degree in economics and a degree in psychology. And I still never found that piece that brought anything together. The, the, the essence that unifies all the diversity. And now even more so today, 20, 30 years removed, we become more specialized we become more, um, our, we become experts in things. And the degree to which we do that and lose unity, we alienate ourselves more and more and more. So no one, no one generally disputes diversity when they look out in creation. Not well, anyway. I mean, you look out and what do you see? You see different languages, different thought, different kind, different social order. We see different species, different backgrounds. Diversity is easy to see. But the only way for there to be diversity in creation, you have to have what? You have to have diversity in the creator. Yes? In order to have diversity in the effect, you have to have diversity in the cause. So if we look out across this glorious creation and we see diversity everywhere, then we have to say, no, wait a minute. Then the God who made us must be somewhat diverse in some capacity. That makes sense, right? You can't have diversity in the effect without diversity in the cause. Are you still with me? Okay, keep following this, please. That means you've got to listen hard. There is not a single worldview. There's not a single philosophy. There's not a single religion that explains unity and diversity except for the Trinity. Not one. Not one. And I, I first came to a saving grace. This captivated because I'd never heard about the Trinity. I thought, this is unbelievable. And I concluded early before I read C.S. Lewis, this is either the most fantastic idea I've ever heard or the most ridiculous thing any man's ever come up with. This idea of a trinity. The Hindu, the Buddhist, the atheist, they can explain diversity well. Hinduism and Buddhism, it's polytheism, many gods. Many gods, you're going to have lots of things made, right? The atheist says there's no god. It's all random point mutation. So it's going to be an absolute chaotic mess. They agree well on diversity, but they cannot... They cannot figure out what unifies. If there are many gods, there's no unity. If there is no God, there's no unity. The Muslim and the Jew, on the other hand, they are fiercely monotheistic. They fiercely argue one God. And so they'll come along and say, oh, we know what unifies. It's God. It's Allah. It's Yahweh. And you say, yeah, but what about the diversity? And they go, yeah, we don't know about that. We don't know how that got here. Because if God is fiercely one God, then you can't explain diversity. And then you come to Christianity. And Christianity, we didn't make this up. This comes directly from the word of God. This is what the Bible teaches. Christianity says, ah, there is one God. And within that one God, there are three eternally distinct persons. And therefore, you have unity and diversity in the Trinity. This is exciting, by the way. I mean, this is, this is extraordinary, mind-blowing stuff. Philosophers today who don't know Christ, they're still trying to figure this out. The Trinity is the key to understanding the coexistence of unity and diversity in creation. And it is the key, believers, for us to understand unity and diversity in the body of Christ. This isn't just some philosophical, heady idea. We got to get it here so that we live rightly. The Bible clearly teaches, Deuteronomy 6.4, most of you know this, that we have one God, one God unified God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And so we are monotheistic. We believe, because the Bible teaches us, that there is one God. And the Bible also teaches, and this is not a contradiction, the Bible also teaches that in that one Godhead, in that radically unified God, there are three eternally distinct people, persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You heard Pastor Kurt read this morning from Matthew chapter 3. At our Lord's baptism, what did you have? At our Lord's baptism, this is without dispute now, you had the Father speaking, you had the Holy Spirit descending, and you had Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, being baptized. There are multiple other places where we have this holy triune God communicating. But at the baptism of Christ, all three are present, all three are revealed. And so what do you have? You have unity, one God, and diversity, three persons, in the cause, in the Creator. And therefore, if the Creator is both unified and diverse, then when we come into creation, when He makes, we see what? We see not only diversity, but we see unity as well. And therefore, you can have both unity and diversity in the effect because it's in the cause, it's in the Creator. The question Thales asked so long ago, what is the one basic element in life that pulls everything together? It wasn't a what, it's a who. And that who is God. It is a holy triune God. One God in three persons. And he draws, he pulls it all together. It is the age-old question of the philosophers that the Bible teaches us so clearly. We see God in the Bible as one. And we see him as eternally distinct in three persons. And what we see, it's not just this, the makeup of God. But what we see is that God, from all eternity, has been loving and communicating and serving and glorifying one another in the Godhead. That means there's always been love, there's always been communication, there's always been community. Community is eternal. It's not something we just try to do now, it's eternal because God has always communed with himself. And that's why this is the foundation of the community in the church. It's the Trinity. It's the Trinity. One of unity in, in diversity. It's unity in diversity. The, when we say the community of believers, we're talking about common union, our common unity, which we have in Christ, which we have in the Holy Spirit. And then we get to 1 Corinthians 12, and we see that within this common unity, God has brought together diverse gifts and talents and experiences and people and languages to make up this glorious body. And that means, saying something utterly profound. And uh, it hit me hard this week. The church, the church, living as a unified, a unified, diverse body is the most glorious manifestation of God on earth. The church, when we come together in the unity of Christ and then we exercise our, our diverse gifts and talents and ministries, we, we reveal to the world Trinity. Not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not Islam, not Judaism. A Trinitarian holy God. And so we become a visual testimony and representation of a most complex teaching. I don't know about you, I still don't have the Trinity down. I think I get it and I lose it. I'm like, ah, oh, I 
I had it. And then I get it, and, and that's a good thing. If you ever get it, you don't got it. And if you don't have it at all, you probably don't have it at any capacity, right? But what Paul's saying here is, when the church is both unified in Christ and exercising its diverse gifts, we, we display for the world the Trinity of God, a Trinitarian God. That's, uh, that's both extraordinary and terrifying. It's terrifying. And so the unity and diversity not only explain how we're to be, but when lived out, it is the glorious manifestation of our holy triune God. In the book of Revelation, John gives us a glimpse of, of what this will culminate in. But we want to be living this out now. Listen to this. This is from Revelation chapter 7. Have you ever noticed when we read Revelation or we have them posted, we sing how... If you are afraid of Revelation, don't be. Go back and read it. It is one of the most encouraging books in the New Testament because we get, what's, we get how it's going to end. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and following. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. A great multitude. And here's the church. From every tribe every nation, every people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Diversity, incredible diversity. And then he says, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits in the throne and to the Lamb, unity. And you have, so you have diversity and unity and it's even described here in the context of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit's the one that brought all this about. This is the spectacular picture that we have in the culmination of the end of time. And so John's, John said here for us, and Paul's saying, bring that down now. That's who you are. That's who we are. So let's be that people now. Let's not be a diverse group of people that run around chaotically and not get the unity right. And let's not be so strangely unified that we divide or we exclude or we look down upon those who are different. Paul saying, John saying, this is who you are. Wonderfully diverse, radically unified. Be that church now. And of course, I'm saying that to you as your pastor. We as the church here at Camden Avenue, that we be this church now. Diverse, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, all united in the soul worship of God. God from the beginning has always been in community. And that means God from the beginning has always been in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has never not been a trinity. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always been. That means they've always been together. They've always been loving one another and, and glorifying one another and enjoying each other's community forever and ever. You and I were created in the image of God to participate in that glorious community of the Trinity. That's why God made you as he made you. Not a dog, not a cat, not a bird, not a fish. You were made as a man or woman in the image of God that you might participate 
in the glorious community of the Trinity that you might be known and know. That you might love and be loved. Not just by others, but by God himself. That you might receive glory from God and, and give that glory back. That's why you were made. To participate in this grand, glorious, Trinitarian life. But we know that the fall came in and sin broke everything. It separated us from God. It separated from his love. It separated from life itself. And that's why, that's why we, when we look out, I was driving in this morning and, and I saw this man, and I don't know why it is, when I'm driving to church, I'm thinking everybody should be following. We should all be going to church. And uh, it's grievous. Life without God is absolutely meaningless. And so what do we do? As a people, we run around trying to find some meaning, some unity. That question of the philosopher for ages is not just a philosophical question. Everybody's trying to find meaning. Everybody's trying to find purpose in something, something that brings it all together. Because we see the chaos. We see the division. Sin makes a mess of everything. And we run around and we, we try to find unity in relationships or in our work or, or purpose in money or, or posture or power or our hobbies. The diversity of distractions is, is almost limitless, is it not? I mean, we have almost an infinite number of things that are consistently drawing us away from God and pulling us to saying, here's the unifying power. It's in your work. It's in your marriage. It's in your children. Focus on that. Until we're baptized by the Spirit, until we drink of the Spirit of God, that drive, that purposelessness, that sense of knowing, I don't know why I'm here, I don't know where I came from, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't know where I'm going, will be your whole life, until Christ. It's amazing to me the barrage of influences that come onto us. I mean, we're being pulled in every direction by everybody. Work, parents, teachers, Friends, siblings, everybody's saying, here's the way. Come this way. This is satisfying. This will unify. This will bring you joy. This will make you happy. This will save you. Until Christ comes, we are purposeless because there's nothing to unify. But when Christ comes, and you know this, if you know Christ, when that Holy Spirit came upon you and he made you alive, when that Holy Spirit came inside you, when you drank of the Holy Spirit and now he dwells in you, for the first time in your life, you say, ah, I now know, I know where I came from, I know why I'm here and I know where I'm going. And suddenly all the diversity comes radically together in Christ. Everything's drawn together. Everything's drawn together. That means work. Listen, workaholics. Some of you, I won't look at you directly, I'll put my head down. Some of you, that means work will no longer be ultimate for you because Christ is ultimate. What does that mean? That means you'll work to the glory of God. Family will no longer be ultimate to you. Your children, your grandchildren, your spouse, it won't be ultimate. God will be ultimate in Christ. And what does that mean? You will be able to love your children or love your spouse or love your grandchildren, not as idols, not as idols, but in Christ. And you know what that means? You'll love them more. 
You'll love them more because you really love them. They won't be an idol that you bow down to. Christ will be your God, and then you can love them rightly, and you won't destroy them. It means that we no longer have to be adrenaline junkies rushing after everything because no longer will we need to be identified with a, a sports team or a social club. No longer will we have to say, I need to live in this neighborhood and drive this car or live this lifestyle to be somebody. All those things will be destroyed because you will be somebody in Christ. You'll be somebody in Christ. And when you're somebody in Christ, when you realize that Jesus Christ is the great unifying force in all the entire universe that he draws the diversity of life together he gives everything its right place he gives everything its right weight because he's God and he says if you worship me first then you won't bow down to your wife or your husband that you won't commit idolatry with your work that you won't worship money if you worship me because he is God then all that diversity all those parts will have their right alignment in the whole There'll be unity and diversity in the Trinity. And this is the most glorious part. When he saved you, he saved you into a body. I'm so glad you're here this morning. Even if you're not a member of this body, I pray that at some point in time, you become a member of this body or the body that God places you in. We're saved into a community. Why? Why can't? Why couldn't God just save us and leave us alone? I mean, you know, if you're an antisocial person, you're that much, but I don't like people. And I got to come, people? Can I just be saved and be alone? You can be. I mean, God, but that's not the order. That's not the plan. That's not how God works. He brings you in. Why? Because you've been gifted. You're now an eye. You're an ear. You're a nose. You're a hand. You're a foot. And that means we need you. The church needs you. If you're saved, the church needs you. That means you're an essential part. That means you, if you're saved, you can't go, I'm in a home church by myself. Church is ecclesia. It means gathering. It's hard to gather with other people by yourself. I don't know how that's done. That's almost as difficult as unity and diversity, right? Gathering means coming together. Gathering means worshiping together. Gathering means working together. We had a chance to sing that this morning, such a glorious song as we work together. Your purpose is so grand in Christ, regardless of the gifts and ministries that he's given you to do. It's so grand, so glorious, that he brought you into a place to be a vital, indispensable member of a local body, his bride. Remember who you are. Remember who we are. We're the bride of Christ. And he brings us in. The Corinthians were so foolish, they thought that some gifts were so much better than others, and so they actually tried to become those other gifts. You know, The ear would say, I'm going to become an eye. And they try to, you know, try to make this transition. Look what Paul says in verse 31. Paul says, eagerly desire the greater gifts. And you go, oh, all right. Well, if I'm a foot, then I want to try to become a hand. If I'm an ear, I want to try to become an eye. And if I, if I, have, the, if I have the gift of, um, of service, then I want to try to have the gift of healing. Or if I have the gift of, of tongues, I want to try to have the gift of wisdom. There's one thing that we get from this passage. The gifts are not ranked. There's no ranking of them. So what does Paul mean when he says to eagerly desire the greater gifts? Remember, in God's economy, everything's upside down. 
So as soon as we try to work something out in the flesh, just stop, turn it upside down. You might have it right. What are the greater gifts? The greater gift is the gift that you have. The greater gift is the gift that God has given you. The greater gift is exercising the gifts, the talents, the ministries that have been assigned to you. The greater gift is exercising your part in the body joyfully, not begrudgingly, not shaking your fist at God. It's being the part that God has equipped you to be. It's recognizing, the greater gift is recognizing how amazing it is that you're actually in the body. That when you were dead, God did make you alive and that he did save you and that he did gift you and then he brought you here. He brought you here through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He brought you here into this one body in Christ. There's no better place to be. So I want you to ask yourself this as we close. Here's your, your one-minute application, and then I'll pray. Are you doing verse 31? Are you eagerly desiring the greater gifts? Do you see yourself as an integral, indispensable, absolutely necessary part of the one body in Christ? That's a yes or no. And if the answer is yes, the question then for you is, are you exercising the gifts and the services and the ministry and the talents and the experiences that God has given to you for the one body? That's a yes or a no. Is the church of which you are a part struggling to see because you are an I and you're way over there? Is the church of which you are a part struggling to walk because you're a foot and you're neglecting to walk? Is this church struggling to hear clearly because you're an ear and you are not participating as an ear? These are questions that we must ask ourselves by God's grace today over the next week. Don't wait too long. Don't wait too long to ask yourself to what degree you are, you are exercising the very gifts God gave you to glorify the unity of the body of Christ. And then, after questioning, by His grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray you will act upon them. Listen carefully. In the unity of the church. Not, not running out and saying, okay, I, I got it, I'm an eye, I'm going to go see way out there. No. If you see way out there, we can't see here. Are you exercising them in the context of a unified local body of believers? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following, Paul said, Christ gave him, gave himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers for what reason? He says, listen closely, saints, to equip his people for works of service. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. By God's grace, this morning, in some capacity, you've been equipped by the word of God. In some way, I pray. And the test will be, not your hearing of this, but your doing of it. Remember the prayer that I started with. 
to hear, to understand, and then to do will reveal whether or not you truly understand. Taking the most glorious, diverse gifts that have been spread throughout this body, and I can say to you with great humility, I am always overwhelmed when I contemplate the degree of talents and gifts that God has brought here to this place. This little church is amazingly gifted, so diverse. We have, and of course that makes sense because God chose, he equipped, and he brought. It's a terrible thing for us not to engage these miraculous movements of the Spirit as one body. It's grievous if we do not. We are to build the body of Christ up. We're to build the church up. Until when? He says, until we all attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I'm not there yet, are you? I'm not, so we have to keep working together. If not, just for me. But if we're all not there yet, then we all have to keep working together, gathering together, ministering together, loving one another together, serving together, being all the parts that we're supposed to be. If you're not an eye, don't try to be an eye. Be the ear or whatever part you are. But be that part. Be that part. Why? For the glory of God. For the glory of God. No better way to end a sermon, right? For the glory of God. Let's pray that we at Camden, and we'll pray for the church throughout the world too, that every member will see their part in this fantastic display of the Trinitarian God, that every church will, be ma- will manifest his glory. Let's pray. Father, I, I admit that it's hard for me to understand this diversity and unity in the com- community you've called us to. But it's certainly not hard to see I, I look upon my brothers and sisters and I hear here in this place, in this time, I see how you've brought people together whom you have saved and indwelt with the Holy Spirit and specifically gifted in wonderful, miraculous ways. And I see when we come together that we are truly unified in the Spirit. I see, Father, how when we live as a church, when we live as a unified, diverse body of believers in community, how that magnifies your glory. I ask that you would bless us with that desire. That you would bless Camden Avenue with the desire to be a unified, diverse community of believers that glorifies your triuneness. I pray that for Camden. I pray it for your church throughout the world. Forgive us for grumbling. Forgive us for not being satisfied for where we are or how you've gifted us. Instead, Lord, change our hearts that we might have a hunger to love and to serve and to minister. That we might want to see this this place, this church, this gathering of saints um, living in such a glorious way that people know we're your children people know you're real and the people know that there's salvation and hope in Christ 
Forgive us for our fog. Forgive us for our lethargy. Forgive us for our sleepiness. Uh, This morning, I pray that you would infuse us with deep desires to pursue you with all our might for all our life until you come again in glory or take us home. I pray all these things in Christ's holy name, for he is worthy of this. Amen.